0: Ah, I just woke up. Don't tell me it's time already. Another episode? Welcome back to your 12th favorite podcast, Re-Educated, where we reimagine, rethink, and reinvent education. It's your host, Gotham Yagopin, alive and blessed to present today's conversation. Stay thirsty for knowledge, and I guess water too. Welcome back, I hope y'all are having yet another phenomenal week. I'm so excited for this Thanksgiving break, it is something that is much more than needed. Something that's been on my mind lately is the American custom of asking the question how are you? Every time we even briefly walk by somebody. I think socially navigating when someone genuinely wants to know how I'm doing versus simply asking as a means to just be like oh hey I see you there can sometimes be confusing. And the theme for this week's conversation lies in the typical response to this question. I'm good. This response of I'm good almost is always accompanied by a smile, the universal emote of the feeling happiness. And this week, our topic of conversation is indeed happiness. It sometimes feels like endlessly chasing this happiness is inseparable from the experience of being a human itself. Thus, this begs the educational question, to what extent are students equipped with the skills to explore and critique their own conceptions of happiness? To get a deeper understanding of the Western conception of happiness and how it's changed over time, I spoke with Dr. Peter Stearns. He is a university professor of history at George Mason University and the provost emeritus. He has worked extensively with the history of emotion, writing happiness in world history. To begin the conversation, I wanted to get an understanding of how Dr. Stearns found his interest in happiness. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Here you go.
1: I've been working on the history of emotion for quite a while now. And happiness, obviously, is an emotion. It's not the first one I've worked on, but it was an attractive thing to tackle because as you've just suggested, um, interest in happiness sort of surrounds us. we frequently ask other people if they're happy, and we expect them to ask us if we're we're happy. So, trying to figure out how a, an historical approach to happiness would improve both the history and the understanding of happiness was a sort of obvious challenge, and it's been very interesting.
0: Mm. And so, you know, b- before we move forward with this conversation, I also wanted to understand every to every single person. We have a different conception of what happiness means. So, in the for the sake of this conversation, when we use this word happiness, what are we talking about?
1: OK, this is the least satisfactory aspect of our conversation. It's really hard to define. Yeah. I mean, the dictionary says happiness means contentment, joy, sense of well-being. Obviously, it's it's, it's a situation where people have a positive sense of what their life is about right then. Um, it can involve joy, but I'm not sure it always does. It's not a great definition, but I can't improve on it except to talk about how it works out in real life to some extent. Mm. The abstract definition is not very good.
0: Mm. Okay. And so, you know, I, I think a lot about how my own... The reason this question is really important to me and in sake of education as well is I think a lot of times when I'm in my mid-20s and I think about what is it that I want to do with my life? Where, does, where do I want to go? There are certain narratives of what it means to be happy that I feel like I have been told. And this culture values that feeling. It's it's Happiness is the the reason why you do anything. It is the ultimate virtue it sometimes feels like. And so you align your life with things that and activities and, and passions that seem to bring you as much of this happiness as possible. So one thing I'm really interested in understanding is how has the Western conception of happiness changed over time?
1: Okay, the most obvious change, and it really goes back more than 200 years. Uh, during the Enlightenment in the 18th century, um, Western thinking began to undergo what some historians call a happiness revolution. And the biggest, there were two changes, but the biggest change was an increasing emphasis on the notion that people should be happy, that this was a reasonable expectation. This was the time in which the notion of uh, a right to the pursuit of happiness entered in our founding documents in the United States. So the biggest change was a much greater sense that happiness should be achievable, that it was perfectly reasonable thing to strive for, And as a potential corollary, if you didn't find it, maybe something was wrong. It's also true that this revolution in happiness emphasized happiness on this earth more than had been the case previously and probably placed a somewhat greater emphasis on the material aspect of happiness, reasonable standard of living, reasonable comfort, that sort of thing. Although that was not hard and fast.
0: And so, you know, prior to this, if, if a adult or if a, if a growing person was like, all right, this is how I want to lead my life, what type of things would they take into consideration more before happiness became?
1: Uh, okay, related? well, the most obvious point for many people in Western society is the first thing that would occur to them is their basic goal was salvation. Mm. Um, in other words, a life, an existence after this life, that doesn't mean they were oblivious to happiness now but happiness on this this earth a was not going to be all that easy because humans are sinful and b was not the main goal the main goal was after this life
0: interesting so you'd
1: you'd want to be careful about getting ensnared in things that that might distract that might detract from the, the the basic goal of salvation
0: hmm and so earlier you had mentioned how this form of materialism and happiness are connected. Are there f- examples in different cultures where happiness and materialism are separated, or do they always sure. come hand in hand?
1: Sure, and even in our society, it's not a it's not a total overlap. Yeah, um, most societies, and this goes back to the ancient Greeks, the traditional Chinese. Most societies see a tension between a materialistic definition of happiness. And what's called a eudaimonic, or notion that happiness involves a sense of achievement, a sense of doing the right thing, a sense of a meaningful, worthwhile life. It's a vaguer definition, but um, this 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 tension between the notion of happiness in pleasures of this earth and happiness in pursuing a somewhat higher purpose doesn't have to be a religious purpose, but uh, this is a tension that goes way back, and I think many people feel it in the world today, in, including in our culture. Mm. Uh, the materialist aspect is the easiest to pin down. Most of us like a certain level of comfort, but I think many of us would not like to end there with our definition of happiness. Mm. We'd want something more.
0: And so when I think about happiness, and I'm curious to hear your opinion on this. Uh, you know, Growing up, I was very much, okay, I'm happy when I solve a certain problem that i have so materialistically it's okay i want a new t-shirt or i want the latest game boy and because and, and and i would set my goal on that and i would endure a certain amount of suffering because i longed for something and was not able to get it and then when i got the thing i was able to for me how i define happiness i was able to feel this feeling of happiness for maybe a day a week or depending on what it is and then I came back to this place of complacency, of like expecting the next thing, looking forward to the next thing to get that little hit of happiness again. And so as I'm getting older and older, I'm realizing that that there is happiness also seems to be like um, I only feel happy if I feel discomfort for a certain amount of time because I'm longing for something. And and that happiness hit comes only later. And so. In a more philosophical sense, would you say happiness is even worth something striving for? Is it even a a worthwhile goal in that?
1: Sure, I think it's a worthwhile goal. Again, depending on your on your definition, if the definition is excessively materialistic, um, evidence is pretty good that too much of this would be counterproductive. Um, you just can't get enough, and. More does not, each each new consumer level you reach doesn't give you quite as much more happiness as you would expect. So there are just limits to that approach. But I think happiness defined in a somewhat broader sense is a worthwhile goal. Um, the only caveat is, I don't think it's worth worrying about too much. Um, one, of the, one of the, and this will undoubtedly get into this in other aspects of our conversation. One of the things I think most people have concluded about our culture, our particular culture, is that many people take their happiness temperature too often, um, mm. they expect a level of happiness that's unrealistic, and they make themselves less happy because they worry about it too much.
0: Interesting, I'm writing all that down. Yeah, I mean, this, this concept of uh, a temperature check of your happiness level, I think is, is a really nice analogy. Um, and so what, what is that like? What, what does that mean to take a temperature check in and how has that changed?
1: Well, I mean, I think the big point is our culture encourages us to ask ourselves fairly frequently if we're happy. And that can be if we're happy in a relationship, It it can be if we're happy with our standard of living, uh, it can be, are we happy with the classes we're taking? And there's nothing wrong with that question, but if you ask it too often, um, again, you're likely to be disappointed hmm. because you're probably pursuing an unrealistic standard. I mean, this is one of the raps, and you, you're you undoubtedly familiar with this. This is one of the raps on social media. Social media allow people to convey a level of happiness that they probably don't actually have. And it makes many other people feel bad because they, they see their colleagues or their Social media contacts seeming to be happy, sometimes faking it, and it makes them miserable by contrast. Well, this is just silly. You need your own standards, and again, you shouldn't have to worry about it too frequently. It's not a bad question, but it's a bad question if you ask it all the time.
0: Hmm. I think a lot about you know. I was I, I used to babysit and live with a lot of like younger children, and they would always come home and saying, "If you're happy and you know, it clap your hands," right, right, right. and it was just funny because it was like. In that song itself are just so many very deep philosophical things and one you have to understand what it means to be you and then you have to understand what it means to be happy but you know even from the youngest age i think people are kind of connect some feeling in their brain to this word happiness so in our culture
1: no question it comes up all the time i mean virtually virtually all our holidays involve happiness mm. you got happy christmas happy new year happy fourth of july i mean it's sneaking into kwanzaa i mean it's just all over the place Happy Thanksgiving, Happy <laughs> Halloween. It's just all, it's it's all around us, okay?
0: Mm. And
1: kids definitely in, in our culture, kids do pick this up very early. I mean, in some cases their first exposure will be when they're one year old, these weird big people around them, throw them a happy birthday party. Well, it's not gonna mean anything when you're one, but by the time you're two, it means something. You begin to have a sense, this is what it means. It means lots of extra things to eat. It means lots of people paying attention to me. And it means lots of gifts, so it's not a hard lesson to learn.
0: Wow! I, I actually only now that you mentioned that, I'm like, whoa, happiness. We use this word "happy" all the time.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Would you somebody, ever? Would you ever
0: suggest? Oh, sorry.
1: No, just somebody, a, a person who uh, wrote an essay for a collection I'm editing on happiness noted that in in our culture, both U.S. and Western Europe, we constantly constantly say, "I'd be happy to do that." By which we mean, okay, I'll do it. In Japan, apparently, that question has no meaning whatsoever. You'd never say I'm happy to do it. They just don't pay that much attention to happiness.
0: Wow. And so purely, I mean, what you're saying is even the, the, num- the number of times we use the word can actually change.
1: Yeah. Oh, no question. No question.
0: Wow. And so we talk about one and two. How early and what do you think are some of the largest ways in which people develop some sort of conception of what happiness is?
1: Well, that's a great question. And I wish I knew more about this than I do. As I've indicated, I think in our culture, kids with, I don't know how often parents say, are you happy? But they certainly throw happiness around. I mean, you mentioned the song, Sesame Street has a song called the Happy Happiness Song. And you know, two and three year olds are watching that. Uh, You go to McDonald's, you get a Happy Meal. Um, Disney Disney constantly throws happiness at us. Their motto is, we're the happiness company. So it's just all around. And it it encourages us to expect happiness fairly commonly. And also, by the time we begin to grow up, we sort of hope and expect that other people will be happy too. We don't like unhappy people.
0: I mean, that's a, this concept of expecting happiness. I think that's, I'm trying to sit on that in, in even, you know, I wake up, I'm like, I'm not feeling happy today. Like what what's going on? Why, why am I not? You know, it, it's interesting because yeah, there's a certain level of expectation of what you should feel. And right. when you, and so are those primarily, and you never know how someone else is feeling. Actually, you can kind of just guess based on maybe how they emote or how they tell you what they say out loud. And so how are we actually coming up to is this similar to you know our understanding of happiness when we expect certain feelings? Are they separate or what is the relationship between those two?
1: Well, I think I think they're pretty closely connected. Mm. That is, to the extent that we take our do we pay attention to our feelings, the notion of expecting happiness comes pretty high on that list. and also pretty on pretty high on the list also. Trying to avoid things that don't make us happy.
0: Yeah. And so, exactly that, which is my next question, it's like, when have you, like, what is the commonality of events or things that happen that make someone feel happy?
1: Well, there's going to be a certain amount of personal variation here, but I think it's some combination of a certain level of physical comfort or even slightly more than comfortable comfort. Plus, usually, a sense of B belonging to some kind of community, family, or slightly larger community, so you don't feel isolated. And then I would add, depending on your age, but, but some sense of you're doing something worthwhile in life, or maybe at a later age, you have achieved something worthwhile in life. So it's not one, it's, it's, it's a combination. It's not one criterion alone.
0: Mm. And, you know, I've seen these like reports, so I work as a data scientist. So a lot of the questions are, what are we measuring? How are we measuring it? And what does it mean to measure something? And so a lot of people have complained, okay, well, we typically compare how well a country is doing by their GDP. And I've seen some new measurements of like a happiness measurement. What are your thoughts on that? How accurate are they? Does it mean anything?
1: Okay. It's a great question. So about 15 years, I think it was 2008. The United Nations began with the Gallup organization taking an annual international poll of happiness. And the notion was exactly this. Uh, happiness and GDP are not going to be the same things. So it's unfair to some countries simply to, to measure how they're doing by their gross domestic product. And I think this is a correct perception. I think the correlation the correlation between happiness and GDP is strong but it's not perfect. So according to these, and, and this is mainly using polling, polling data about asking people whether they felt happy that day or felt happy recently. And you can poke all sorts of holes in polling data, among other things, because people often answer the way they think the pollster wants them to. So if you ask an American, if, you, if a pollster asks an American, are you happy? The chances are the American will say yes, because happiness, is a sign of a successful life. Uh, and if you say you're unhappy, uh, you risk saying, well, I've done something that makes me a failure. You don't want to say that. So I think our culture culture probably exaggerates uh, the number of responses that indicate happiness. US places usually between 13 and 18 on the list of countries. Um, but again, just GDP does not measure d- d- does not measure the rank order entirely. And there are some countries with a somewhat lower GDP that do surprisingly well. Costa Rica, for example, does surprisingly well. Um, so there's a correlation with material success for society, but it's not perfect. And some societies with high material success don't place high at all. Japan, for example, typically comes in around 50. Which is weird.
0: And could part of this be? And so, one interesting thing about this is, as we've mentioned earlier, how happiness perceptions of happiness change across cultures. How do they account for that?
1: Well, um, okay, I suspect you you account for it in two ways. Most basically, um, definitions of happiness. Relate closely to other aspects of the culture. Um, in some cases, that goes well back. Uh, Japanese culture, for example, is still he- heavily described by a modification of Confucian values, and Confucian values did not place individual happiness high on the scale at all. So, I think in some cases, the cultural framework is really is is really fairly old. But you also want to take into account influence from other societies um, and simply changes in material or political conditions. Not surprisingly, the least happy countries in the world are usually ones involved in some kind of civil war. So Yemen, for example, is not a happy country. But that's absolutely predictable. But they're, they're not happy, not so much because of their culture, but because of the horrible things that have been happening politically and economically to their society.
0: Hmm. And, you know, I'm thinking about this concept of, you know, you, you mentioned happiness being this mix of physical comfort, sense of belonging, doing something worthwhile. It's interesting because I think a lot of those things as well are very comparative. So a sense of belonging sometimes can be based on how I think other people feel like they're belonging. That's how my comparison is. Or even with comfort, it's that if I feel more comfortable than the people around me, I may feel comfortable, even though on some objective sense, I I may not actually be comfortable. Okay, fair enough. And so my question then becomes how much of our feelings of happiness come from a place of comparison versus some objective sense of like, this is how much comfort one needs to have objectively across the board for them to feel happy versus i just need to be more comfortable than those around me to feel happy
1: oh that's a good question okay my impulse would be to say it's it's obviously a bit of both okay my impulse would be to say it depends more on objective standard than on comparison i mean i don't spend a lot of my time i once in a while but i don't spend much of my time Worrying that Jeff Bezos has so much more money than I will ever aspire to—that doesn't affect me personally at all. Um, so, and I don't—I don't spend much time. Again, I, my guess is it, there's an age difference here. That when you're growing up, you're more likely to be comparing because you're not quite sure what are the sta- what the standards are. But I think uh, comparison, at least if you have a well-balanced life, comparisons. Comparison should not should not be the main point.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I remember. Yeah, I don't. I don't. I can't say it properly, but I remember reading somewhere where it was like it. It, it wasn't necessarily like the richest person in the world, but it was more like oh, your spouse's uh, siblings' wife or husband. It was. It was something that like the comparisons were made a lot more okay close to you than it was globally.
1: Okay, but that's risky, right? I mean, you may be right, but that would be sort of pessimistic. Because if you're constantly comparing yourself to other family members, you risk not having a very good family life.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so
1: i I don't mean you're wrong, but I'd be leery of placing too much emphasis on that.
0: Yeah. I mean, yeah,
1: people yeah. people you know people carve out different different paths, and their 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 criteria are going to be somewhat different.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that is one of the the beautiful parts of growing up. It feels that you comp- the comparisons slowly diminish. Hopefully, yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, but again, one of the things, one of the big wraps on social media, is they they encourage this sense of comparison, and it demonstrably makes people less happy.
0: Mm. And so is that? So now that you mentioned social media, is there a have you seen like a certain amount of use of social media that can actually lead to someone feeling happier, or is it that any use of social media?
1: No, I wouldn't say any use. But, but I mean, the big things are uh, this pattern on places like Facebook or Instagram, where people post... I mean, the worst excess is people post pictures of themselves with a background that suggests they're in Hawaii. They're actually in Hoboken, New Jersey, but they want to try to impress people with how happy they are and how successful they are. That's just... I mean, that's ridiculous from every standpoint. It's ridiculous to do it. And then it's ridiculous if you feel bad. Because you see somebody with an OIA background. So the I don't mean social media always make us unhappy to the extent that they connect us with the, with other people. Um, it's a plus. But it, I think the evidence is, particularly for teenagers, if you use social media a lot, you're probably not as happy as you would be otherwise.
0: Mm. And, you know, I'm assuming you grew up before the time of social Yes, media. indeed. <laughs> and so would you say, I mean, in your gen- genuine experience, would you say people across the board were happier or is that maybe like, how can you no, separate that from No, I have, okay, look,
1: look, no, no, not for sure. Um, the pandemic obviously cut into happiness. So the last couple, three years have not been happy and for many people and are... Political tension, our polarization, um, have made people less happy. But I wouldn't make that as a judgment across, say, several decades. Um, I think the it's it's just plain hard to say. Normally, improvements in standard of living produce some increasing happiness, though not as much as you'd expect. Um, We've had some improvement of standard living over the past fifty years. It's been modest, um, hard to measure. Mm.
0: You know, the reason I, I ask these questions is I think a lot about the access to technology that I have. For example, the dishwasher and machine, and and you know, being able to wash my clothes. I don't necessarily feel happy about the fact that I have the uh, it's the only time I feel unhappy is when they stop working. But for somebody who had to have existed in a world where they didn't have access to that and then they were the generation in which that certain ta- that task was you know made easier for them. They can feel the benefit of that. And so the question is, as societies become more advanced, are we only feeling the happiness for the things that we used to do and now no longer have to? Or does everyone feel reap some benefits?
1: Okay, again, a really good question. First thing to say is, obviously, we have socially short memories. You're absolutely right. Most of us would really not be happy living 100 years ago. We really would not be. (laughs) But we've we've forgotten. I mean, comparatively speaking, we've forgotten how many changes. Here's here's the biggie. If we lived 100, well, let's say 150 years ago, it would be almost certain that at least one sibling in our family would die we don't do that anymore most most families do not have a death of a child which 100 years ago was still well 150 years ago really common okay but we don't think about that at all that doesn't make our lives happier today we just assume it so that part, you're you're absolutely right we're very um, our, our memories are short we measure by yesterday not by day before yesterday Mm. Okay, um, Okay. so that means, yes, in terms of technology changes or health improvements, um, you're going to want to look for things that made our lives easier over the past 10 or 20, maybe 30 years, depending on your age.
0: And, and this concept of measuring by the day before yesterday, are there ways in which we can develop certain mindsets to to remember that or to, to compare with that?
1: Look, I think a little bit of that would be good, which means to which means seriously, we need to learn more history. Um, but I would I wouldn't overdo this. I mean, there's no way that many of us are going to gain an active sense of happiness, realizing that if we'd lived 150 years ago, we would be surrounded by more death. <laughs> I mean It's just too far away. It's too different. Right.
0: Hmm. Yeah. And, and, It just There is a sense of gratefulness that I think, you know, people say that with health as well. Like, uh, I'm never grateful or happy about my health until something stops working. And then I'm like, oh, I miss the times where it used to be great. But it's great today, and I'm not feeling that sense of happiness that it's working today. And so I think developing that certain level of appreciation for things either before they're taken away or after they're given to you uh, can be really helpful.
1: Yeah. And remember, it doesn't just have to be our own health. It can be the health of our children. Mm, Um, So if something comes along, and again, right now is not the best way to do this because health problems for kids are temporarily on the increase. But if something comes along, I can give you an example. Now, this is not for your generation, but um, many people would remember when polio was an active threat. And we don't worry about it minor, minor exceptions. We just don't worry about polio anymore. It was a huge concern. When I was a kid, it was a huge concern. And I didn't have to worry about it for my kids at all. And I think you could think of comparable examples. So again, you're not measuring just by your own health conditions, but by people, you, by conditions that affect people you care about.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so you know, con- moving this conversation into the space of education, one thing I think is really important is to even, like, challenge the, the con- like, conventional understanding of what happiness is. I, I meet a lot of friends who who strongly, you know, it's cool to see people go through many phases of their life and, and how people's understanding of what used to make them happy or what they thought would make them happy once they get it no longer does. Right. And so... You know, I met a lot of people from going from high school being like, I'll be happy once I get into a college. You get a college. I'll be happy once I get the job. They got the job. I'll be happy once I get the girlfriend. They got the girlfriend. I'll be happy. And it's it's cool how it's just this constant running thing. And so I, I think it's so crucial in education to really question what does it mean to be happy, which I don't think was done too much. What are some ways you think that this can be introduced into schools where children are you know critically thinking about what is happiness? Okay. That's
1: a good question. I don't know about school level curriculum. And and frankly, it would be a little complicated because you'd run into uh, some of the same political debates that we're having in other aspects of education. Do we want schools to be teaching our children about happiness instead of parents? But your basic point is a good one. I think there are opportunities, even just as part of um, courses in history, there are opportunities to talk about happiness and changes in happiness and cultural variations in happiness. Um, Right now, as you may know, there's clearly a deep interest among college students in happiness, mainly through psychology courses. I don't know whether you've heard of this course at Yale, where a psychology prof has offered a, I think it's a one credit course discussing happiness. Um, On Coursera, I
0: think, yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah. She has 1,100 kids signing up for her course. so. College students right now have a hunger for the opportunity to evaluate happiness. And I think we could build on that. And obviously, yeah. um, I think sight can do that. I think philosophy and history can do that. Whether you could do much about this before college level, not sure. But certainly the opportunity to, to, to discuss it in college is, is, I think, both available and desirable.
0: Hmm. And so in all the work that you have done, what are some of the biggest takeaways you've gotten and, and, and maybe even implemented into your own life?
1: Okay. Um we've covered many of these things.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: The big E is don't worry about it too much. Doesn't mean don't ever talk about whether you're happy or not, but don't have it as a constant issue. Obviously. And anybody who studies happiness will say this, do not expect to be happy all the time. It's unrealistic, it's not even desirable. Sadness is actually, periodic sadness is actually a useful component of happiness because you have something to measure happiness against. So don't worry about it all the time. Don't expect a constant because that's not the way life is. It's unrealistic and not even desirable and then think of you know think about the the different components of happiness and what what grabs you personally including this balance between material happiness which is perfectly all right up to a point including by the way sexual pleasure that's a, that's a key component of happiness but the balance between that and this somewhat less precise definition of happiness as a sense of contributing sense of doing something that's meaningful and useful Um, And in our society, I think paying more attention to that is is probably desirable. Not instead of material comfort, but but as as a balance.
0: And that brings us to the end of our conversation. I wanted to first thank Dr. Stearns for coming and sharing all of his insight, and I wanted to give an even bigger thanks to each and every single one of you for listening and supporting. The current conceptions of happiness are ones that fundamentally shape our lives. And therefore, I think it's crucial that schools equip students to critically think about why they feel the way they do about happiness itself. And so I'm excited to move forward on this path of thinking as well and talking to more people who work in this space to get a better understanding of what are different ways in which students can explore their own ideas of happiness. Thank you for listening. And as per usual, stay re-educated.